Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. best of intentions comes up and says some little Christian trope to you that is maybe even true, but doesn't always actually touch those places of need where you are. I've heard some of the most absurd things about the Christian faith I've ever heard in my entire life at funerals. And some people in that are trying their best to gravitate towards finding some measure of hope for now and not for what is in the future. Because if we talked about last week, we're living in that tension between the already and the not yet. We have the hope of the resurrection, but we don't have it in its fullness. We want to look for these places of easy answers and certainty, and sometimes in these moments of grief and pain, we all know they don't come very easily. So as we continue in our series in Romans 8 that we're going through all summer long, that's where we're headed today, this weighty, significant hope that can change not only our present, but reorient our future. So I'm going to read our scripture here today, and then let's pray together. This is the word of the Lord. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you that as we come into a room like today, we carry so many wounds and baggage of not only the week before, but years and years of our struggles, and we gather here today, Lord, because we need a hope that is bigger than us. We need a gospel that is a good news to where we are as we are. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that you are already here, already present, already working. We don't have to stir you up. We don't have to speak you into existence. You are here loving us now. So would you make our hearts in our minds, open to what you want to do and what you want to say to us to shape us into the image of your Son. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was reading this week about someone by the name of Kate Bowler. I don't know if you've heard of her. She is an author and a professor, a prestigious Duke Divinity School, and one of the foremost experts. She's written extensively on the American prosperity gospel. If you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, it's pretty simple. If you obey and you do all the right things, then God will make all your wildest dreams come true. 
You'll get all the money you want. You'll always be whole and healed. And that's what we've heard most of the time. You've probably experienced this from televangelists on TV, from the people flying in their private jets. But Kate Bowler, who was this expert on the prosperity gospel, found herself in a moment learning why this is such a popular concept. Because even though she didn't believe that if you have all the faith, you will be healed automatically, she didn't believe that if you have faith that God will give you the money that you always need. In her book, she wrote about this, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I Have Loved. She described how this appeal comes about because in her early 30s, with a husband and a young child, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And suddenly, in the midst of being the scholar of the prosperity gospel of the American church, she found herself drawn to that false sense of certainty. She writes this, I would love to report that what I found in the prosperity gospel was something so foreign and terrible to me that I was warned away. But what I discovered was both familiar and painfully sweet, the promise that I could curate my life. I could minimize my losses and stand on my successes. And no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at the creed's outrageous certainties, I craved them just the same. I have my own prosperity gospel, a flowering weed grown in with all the rest. What she discovered is something I think we probably all will or have discovered at some point or another because if we have soaked ourselves in an American form of Christianity, there are little pieces of that prosperity gospel that make their way into our thinking. You probably feel intrinsically, even if it's not explicit sometimes, that if I do all the right things, there must be success. But as Bowler points out, the writer of both the letter that we read today, Romans, and most of the New Testament found himself often imprisoned and beaten and left for dead. He was eventually, in the very city this letter was written to, beheaded and thrown into an unmarked grave. Now, did Paul die such an incredibly painful death and experience all of this suffering and hardship because he did not have enough faith? No. It's friggin' Paul, right? Did he have enough faith? Of course he had enough faith. And yet in his obedience, he suffered greatly. The history, as we look at the history of God's people, not only in the scriptures, you see men and women who walked faithfully with Jesus, and yet they suffered greatly. If you look at the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, that's often pointed to the first half of the chapters, all these people who experienced grand miracles and wonderful lives. What we often do is cut off the bottom half that talks about people literally being sawed in two and murdered and left for dead, who God calls in Hebrews 11 faithful, obedient. When we look at our history as a church, what we see is that faithfulness often leads, whether we know it or not, to suffering. It doesn't always, but faithfulness at times does not preclude us from our ability to suffer. 
And so what I want to bring to you today as we look at this passage is not the easy answers or the magical thing that's going to explain away this paradox of how we live in the tension between suffering and faith, but I believe what we have in our passage is a truth that is far deeper. I believe we have something that satisfies us as an anchor in the storms of suffering that you and I will inevitably face or maybe will face today. Romans 8, 28, the anchor of this passage says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We were given these words, not as a why suffering happens, but to understand what God is doing when we suffer. The Bible, I hope you know, it doesn't paint this picture of God who delights in heaping suffering upon us because that's what God does. Instead, what we see is a God who enters into our suffering with us, and through that suffering, we find redemption. I've used this picture before, but it's sort of like this. A picture of me at home painting a grand and beautiful picture. I know that's so easy for you to imagine, me painting a masterpiece. Thank you for imagining that. I have this masterpiece sitting in my living room that I have spent hours and hours. It's a nice nature scene, mountains and valleys. It's beautiful, and I have spent so much time and effort and resources on making this beautiful picture as it is. And this is the very realistic part of the story in that imagine my youngest child who has never in his entire existence sat still at any point, even I don't think during sleep, is running through the living room and all of a sudden bumps into all of my paint and splatters the paint all across this masterpiece I've been working on for hours and hours and days and days. And suddenly my son looks up at me with utter fear. I have absolutely ruined what my father has made. He begins to cower in the corner, probably for him, cowering in the kitchen. That's his favorite room. Cowering down because he is terrified, terrified of what the father is going to do. But instead, the father patiently picks up the paint and the brushes. And with the precision of what an artist can only do, he incorporates the splatter into the picture as it was and somehow makes the picture more beautiful than it ever could have been before in the artistry and the sovereignty of his command. This is what all things means when God works it for our good. Not that God wills, for the splatter to happen, but that even when in our sin and brokenness, we make a mess of our lives, we make a mess of our stories, God is sovereign in that he can take even the worst of our lives, the worst of our mistakes, the worst of our feelings, and form them for something good that we could not even on our own. This is the heart of the promise of Romans 8.28. I truly believe, as we said last week, when the Bible says all things God means, 
all things. Like an artist with a masterpiece, he can take what we suffer, and because he is sovereign, he brings that for our glory. When we say that God is sovereign, we're not saying that God deterministically decides that you're going to suffer, but that even as we suffer in a broken world, that God in his sovereignty forms all things for our good. Not just our good, but our bad. Not just our highs, but our lows. Everything we experience in the hands of God is made for our good. And the reason is, is what Paul says next. For Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I try to avoid, when I'm preaching, to use too much gravitas and uh, just set expectations that I cannot meet up here and make, make wild, bold statements. But I'm going to make a wild, bold statement right now. I'm going to tell every one of you what God's ultimate will for your life is right now. Get ready. Nobody's getting their pens out. God's will for your life, as we see here, is to make you like Jesus. God's ultimate aim for your life, every life, is to make you like Jesus. This is the promise that we're given today. Your utmost good What your good and bad are being formed into is being made into, in the hands of God, being made like Jesus. And you hear this promise today, maybe, I would say, not as as good of a news as you would hope, depending on how a lot of us understood what it means to be made like Jesus. Because I used to think to be made like Jesus was to be made into a very good moral Christian boy, right? Be made nice. So when somebody says, you're going to be made like Jesus, I'm like, great. That sounds really nice, but not really good for me. Or at best, like God's going to make you moral. God's, I mean, imagine in your worst moments of suffering and struggle, someone saying, don't worry, God's going to make you a better person through this. How comforting is that? It's not. But if something deeper is taking place, if God is forming us into the image of Jesus in a way that brings us to something more than just being good little boys and girls, to being more than just moral people, being more than just being more of a good person, finally we have something that we can hold on to. You see, I believe that to be made like Jesus, what it truly means more than anything else is to be made whole to be made in ourselves the wholeness of who God is making us to be. Christ-likeness, when we speak about this, I hope you know it's not a detached uh, Christian ideal that we somehow hope to achieve one day. That's not, when we speak of this, what Christ-likeness is. In the end result of what the Spirit is shaping in us through our good and bad, God is uniquely working in each one of us to make us whole. Not just good, but whole. That's actually, in moments where we feel like everything is broken, wholeness is good news. 
Goodness isn't always good news, but when all things are falling apart, when the ground beneath your feet is shaking and you can barely stand, the hope that what is broken on the ground will be brought together into the wholeness of who I'm made to be, that's finally when I am suffering some good news. That's what our scriptures tell us. What the whole earth, as we looked at last week, is groaning for, this wholeness that Jesus is bringing. There's another word for this in the scriptures, this word shalom. Shalom is an Old Testament Hebrew word, meaning when nothing is broken and nothing is missing. I love Cornelius Plantinga. He writes this. He's a scholar on shalom. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. I love that. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. We all have that ache that says it's not supposed to be this way. We all feel that ache that says the world should not be like it is. Hopefully, you have felt that ache that says, I'm not who I want to be yet. And if that's you, there is good news that you are being brought to wholeness in Jesus through everything that happens to you in his name. And yet, when I consider this, when you and I look at this hope, what we often forget with the big picture of God's shalom is that that wholeness is coming from me too. It's one thing to believe that in Revelation 21 when Jesus says, I am making everything new. It's at least easy for me to think of the cosmic reality of that. But that when Jesus speaks, I am making everything new, he's talking about you too. And he's talking about me. That what is broken in me will fully and finally be made whole. And in the meantime of the suffering I face, I'm being formed in and towards and moving at that wholeness. Philippians 1, 6 promises this. It says, I'm confident that the creator who began such a good work among you will not stop in mid-design, but will keep perfecting you until the day Jesus, the anointed, our liberating king, returns to redeem the world. In other words, God is actually committed to your growth and wholeness. God does not stop mid-design. I love this. This, to me, blows my mind, that God is more committed to my growth and wholeness than I am. That right now, God is looking at you and is more committed to you coming to a place of Christ-likeness and wholeness and growth, then you have the desire to actually do it. And to me, that's good news because sometimes I don't want that wholeness, right? Sometimes my faith wavers and falters, and it's good news that God exceeds my commitment to my own growth, right? It's good news that God exceeds my commitment to my own wholeness and that I can trust that even when I fail and falter, when I suffer, what is being formed in me is based upon his commitment to me and not my commitment to him because my commitment to him sometimes falters, right? Are you with me? 
And the good news I think we see here today is that when our circumstances fail and falter, which they will, God's commitment to our healing and our wholeness extends beyond what we feel and what we see. The Spirit of God is carrying our needs to the Father. This is what we see at the beginning of our passage today. We're working through this backwards. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. What an astounding thing to consider here today that how many times have you found yourself in your faith journey at a place when you go and you try to pray or you try to read the Bible and you just run into a brick wall. There's just nothing there. Maybe it's you're, you're weary, you're tired, maybe you're struggling to believe that God is even present and around you. What the scripture is telling you and I today is that in those moments, God's not running away from you at your failure, at your faltering faith. The Spirit of God himself is picking up where you can't, is praying for you on your behalf. That's crazy, my friends. What good news is it to those of us at least who struggle in our faith, who struggle to have the words to say, who struggle to be consistent in our prayer lives, in our scripture reading, that when we fail and falter, the Spirit carries us to God in a way that we can't on our own. That's good news, right? That's good news. Maybe you all are doing great, and your prayers are awesome, and you always have something to say. But for the rest of us, I'm glad the Spirit carries me to the Father when I can't get there. I'm glad the Spirit knows what to say when I don't. I'm glad the Spirit knows the needs that I have when I can't even see them myself. And I'm so glad that my prayer life is not dependent on how good I'm at. Thank you, Jesus. Because God's more committed to my wholeness and my growth than I am. And God is more committed to your wholeness and your growth than you are. I mean, if God is only God in response to our effort, to our energy and devotion, to the depth of our faith, we are hopeless. We're hopeless. But what we see is the gospel speaks of this God who by his spirit speaks up for us, advocates for us, literally prays in our place when we do not have the words to say. I, I dare you this week to just meditate on that for a bit. The fact that I can only get so far, and when I do, that that's not the end of me, that's the beginning of God. What confidence that gives you to just be with God knowing that I don't have to drum him up. I don't have to say the right words. I can just come and bring who I am where I'm actually at. And if God is that committed to my wholeness, I can know today that nothing is actually wasted in my life. No suffering or heartache or failure is wasted in the hands of God. And over the stretch of a lifetime, if we zoom out and look at our faith journey, what we will see is that those broken, messy moments have been formed for our wholeness and our good. God taking good and bad, best and worst, silence and speaking for our good. 
and for his glory. And if that's true, when things falter and fail, I can persevere. When things are hard and difficult and weary, I can keep going because even in my weakness, God can meet me where I am at. And it starts, I believe, in moments like this as we gather together in a very simple room singing simple songs, trying to be present to the God who is already present to us. It is difficult in our world to be present to anything. But what we know and see in the scriptures is that today, God is already present to you in love. God is present to you, and the calling of a gathering like this is to be present to the God who is already be present, who is already present to us, and also to be present to one another. It is easy to sing these songs about God's goodness or our joy when things are great. And on some levels, it's even easy to bring our laments and our cries and our questions to God. But when we have come to the end of ourselves, which I know many of you have or many of you have right now, when there is nothing left to give, when your best attempts at faith just fall flat on the ground, what feels like the absence of God is not an absence but an opportunity to offer your nothing to God. This is what he wants. He wants both your everything. Yes, God wants everything, but he also wants your nothing. God wants not just your highest hope. He wants your deepest lament. He wants your easiest faith, but he also wants your hardest doubt. He wants your nearness to him, but he also wants your numbness to him. And all of these things together over the span of our faith journey offered up to God, both in our joy and our sorrow in the hands of God, when we offer up our life, that's what it means to truly be Christian. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is a long obedience in the same direction through both what feels like the absence and feels like the presence of God, through what feels like heartache and what feels like joy, walking through this with Jesus, giving him both what I have and what I don't have and trusting that I'm being formed into something for my good. I guarantee you, right now in this room, for many of us, there is an ache we feel about something that has happened, something that is happening right now, or a fear of what could happen. And what we have today as we move into a time of communion is this hope. Whatever you bring to the one who shapes all things for our good. And his hands is being made whole in you. So my encouragement today is if you have nothing, bring your nothing. Bring God your nothing today. Bring him your numbness. Bring him your lament. If you have joy and happiness, great, bring that to him. But if today you are empty on the ground, that's exactly what God wants not you fixing yourself up to bring to him. He just wants you where you are. So I want to pray, and we're going to move into a time of communion and prayer together. And I just encourage you to respond to what the Lord is speaking to you. Father, today, I, I, I just leave and look at my own life and think of how many moments I've looked at that have felt like everything was failing 
And I need to know today, we need to know today to be reminded afresh that there is one who meets us where we are. That there is one who holds us when we can't hold our own. That when words fail, you speak. What an astounding thought that the Holy Spirit gathered with us here today. The Holy Spirit is uniquely meeting each one of us where we are. And may we, God, today, in whatever shape we've walked into this room, with whatever heartache or hurt we've carried into a room like this, may we have the courage today just to bring it to you, to bring our nothing and place it into the hands of the one who is making us whole. Lord, may we bring today those broken pieces. May we bring those disappointments. May we remember afresh today as we look on the scope of our faith journey that what is ahead is hope because you're bringing our good. So deepen that into our hearts today. Put that, that, that seed down deep and let it grow. I pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion today. We do this every week.